Well, I knew I was uh, going to be in a little bit of trouble when I had James introduce me, but uh, uh, but thanks for that introduction. Uh, if you just bow your heads, uh, we'll open with a, a, a quick word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, I thank you for this uh, this conference, uh, the people that are attending that uh, that love you so much that they want to uh, uh, learn to not only share their faith but defend the faith. I thank you for the speakers who've given up of their time and uh, and uh, that I just come here to uh, to just pour out their knowledge uh, with others. And I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to, to, to be here and to speak with such great defenders of the faith. I just thank you for this privilege and this honor. And so I pray, Lord, that you would anoint me to proclaim your truth and that, uh, uh, you know, people came here to hear your truth. And so I just pray that uh, that your spirit would guard my mouth and my tongue so I would proclaim your truth today. I pray that we would be able to uh, learn from this discussion and that we'd be able to dialogue with our atheist friends and uh, maybe plant some seeds and lead them a little closer to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, our God and Savior. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Well, you know, i, I got to admit, coming here to this conference, uh, you get guys like Dr. Habermas and... Uh, uh, Dr. Guyvet and uh, the rest of the guys they got, I feel like a, a dwarf among among giants, but um, uh, just just brilliant guys. But I, I just want to reassure you, I'm a pretty good speaker, had a lot of experience. In fact, last time I spoke in the Seattle area, uh, they gave me $500 to stop talking. And um, but uh, whatever the case, uh, I had the Institute of Bill of Defense. We're like. Uh, uh, a Christian think tank, and we try to defend the faith, and we do a lot of stuff over the internet and, and take some talks. But we're, we're based out of Bremerton, Washington, so uh, technically this is this is our world tour, and we get to cross the cross the water and, and come out here. Now, the, the handouts that I gave you is a, is a reason why I give out uh, handouts, and, and that's uh, that's basically because uh, I'm. I'm half Italian, I'm from New Jersey, um, I'm a preacher, so only the Lord knows what I'm going to talk about today, And uh, but if you have the, the notes, then you'll, you'll know what I was supposed to uh, speak about. So, um, so if it doesn't follow from all over the place, there's time limitations, and, uh, and uh, sometimes, you know, brain cramps at a speaker, uh, we may go off in different branches, but whatever the case... Uh, the, the title of this is Refuting Arguments for Atheism, but I've done a lot of praying about it. I think I'm going to spend a little bit more time on how I try to make a case for theism, how I try to make, build a case for the existence of, of God. And um, uh, if we have time, we'll talk about some of the atheist objections to God. If we don't have time, you know, throughout uh, the rest of the day, you could swing by and, and we could talk about some of these other points and, and all on a one-on-one basis. But uh, what I found early on when I started debating on college campuses, taking public debates for God's existence, I, you know, I, I, I won my first uh, public debate pretty, pretty handily, but I realized, you know, I was, I was arguing for God's existence beyond all reasonable doubt. So the philosophy professor that showed up to debate me all he had to do was create two, three, four, five percent doubt, 
And, uh, and you know, he, he could have won the debate. Now, the good thing was he just laid down and died for me, and that's, that's all right. Anytime they want to do that, I'm all for it. But, but whatever the case, uh, what I found out was that it, it's not really fair. We, we Christians often allow the deck to be stacked against us. And the atheists ask, like, oh, you know, this, this happens time after time. I really lack belief in God. So I don't have any worldview that I'm trying to defend. So the burden of proof is on you, the Christian. And so we're left there trying to build a case. And if we make a strong case for the existence of God, but it's not logically necessary, the conclusions are, are not, not logically necessary, then they act like they won. Okay? They create one or two percent doubt. So what I try to do is I try to take the, the debate about God's existence out of the criminal court, so you've got to prove it beyond reasonable doubt. It's just not fair, because the atheist does have a worldview. Okay? Uh, take it out of there and put it in the civil court with the preponderance of evidence. So, you know, it's mano y mano, one-on-one. It's my worldview, theism, versus your worldview, atheism. Okay? Uh, I, I try not to allow atheists, um, I call it the, the fallacy of piling on. I debated Dr. Michael Martin from Boston University over the internet, on the Internet Infidels website. And I think it translated into French and Spanish and stuff, so it's got a lot of, lot of use over the last nine years. But he would say about one of my arguments, well, that could also prove polytheism. You know, the belief in many gods. And then you move on. Oh, that could also prove deism. The belief in a god who doesn't perform miracles. Here it is. If it proves deism or polytheism, it still destroys atheism. See, he's acting like he's, he's like a, a moving target. You just can't pin him down. He would also never tell me whether he believed in absolute moral laws. He would never tell me whether he believed in absolute um, truth. And so you couldn't, you couldn't pin this guy down. So what I pointed out during the debate, I said, it, it, it's as if he, he lives in a glass house. He likes to throw rocks at everybody else's house, the atheist does. But then he never tells anybody his address because he knows he lives in a glass house. Okay? And, um, and so if you're going to debate somebody, you are not only saying, I disagree with what they believe in, but you, that entails that you believe in something. And so what I tell atheists, don't bring your New Age friends with you, your polytheist friends, your deist friends. Let's just go two worldviews. Yeah, after I get done with you, we could, we could uh, meet with your polytheist friend uh, next Tuesday, all right? I don't care. But let's, let's make it fair. We don't have to pile on. Um, so it's kind of the fallacy of piling on and the fallacy of refusing to give your address. Don't let the atheists... You know, they just like the ancient skeptics. They like to throw rocks at everybody else's view. We gotta, they, they believe in something. Find out where they stand. And, um, and, and then I think we could really enter into some good dialogue with them. So what I do is, I just take Christian theism, the, you know, our belief that there is one personal God uh, who created the universe out of nothing, and I treat it as a hypothesis, okay? an explanation of the data in question, and I argue that it's more reasonable to believe in God uh, than it is to be an atheist. You see, I'm not shooting for 99% certainty, okay? I'm just saying if it's more reasonable to be 
a Christian than it is to be an atheist, we shouldn't become atheists. See, this is the whole thing, you know, with the problem of evil, the way the atheists like to throw the problem of evil at us. They end up bringing up one case of the problem of evil that we can't explain. Should that devastate my faith that Phil Fernandez can't figure out why God allowed an, uh, an innocent infant to suffer and die? Should that devastate my faith? No. See, the fact of the matter is, if I have my God all figured out, so I know his ways, I know his thoughts, I got them all figured out, is definitely not the God of the Bible. Okay? Now, it's just like the book of Job. In the book of Job, uh, Job was suffering and he knew that he didn't do anything to bring it on himself. So he began to question God. He didn't curse God, but he questioned God. And he said, I want to plead my case before God because I kind of think he keeps bad records. I want to plead my case before him. He's got the wrong guy. Okay? And uh, God, in the end, when, when God arrives on the scene, okay, God's basic message, God doesn't even explain, this is why I allowed you to suffer, Job. But what God tells him is that, basically, Job, you know enough about my goodness not to question me in areas that you just don't understand. You see? See, if I listed all the big questions um, that philosophers have asked throughout the ages, the, the, the 100 biggest questions, this book, the Word of God, the Bible, answers like 95% of them. Okay? So why in the world would we trash Christianity, forsake Christianity, which answers 95% of the questions, Apparently, God has chosen not to answer those other 5%, and we just throw up our hands and say, well, I don't know, with that specific case, I don't know why God allowed that. Why should we trash Christianity? Because we, God hasn't given us 5% of the answers, and then embrace something like atheism, which, as far as I'm concerned, answers nothing. Okay? Um, and so, we, we have to, we Christians are nice people, but we have to, we have to play with fair rules. Okay? Their eternity's at stake. Uh, we, we can't let them get this big advantage. And so I, I think we just argue it's more reasonable to believe in God than it is to be an atheist, and that theism offers a more adequate explanation than atheism does for several aspects of reality. Now, I, I listed 13 here. You could, you could call it a list longer, a list smaller. Well, I'm not going to be able to cover all of these. Okay? But basically, it's getting to the point. I mean, there was a time in my life where I was skeptical. When I was a senior in high school, I was skeptical about God's existence. Okay? Now, the, the older I get, man, it's like I, I, everywhere I look, I see God. Okay? Um, and, uh, uh, but, but here's some aspects of human experience that, to me, I think are more obvious, these, these aspects, than, than certainly the quote-unquote truth of, uh, of atheism. Uh, but aspects of experience, like the beginning of the universe, okay? Do you realize most, most uh, uh, thinkers today acknowledge the beginning of the universe? Now, I'm not even a big fan of Big Bang cosmology. I'm not a scientist. I don't know what's going on, okay? But uh, because of Big Bang cosmology, apparently the universe is expanding in all directions as we go forward in time. So if you were to go backwards in time, the universe would get smaller and smaller until scientists who believe in the Big Bang, say eventually you reach a point where the universe would be a point of infinite density. 
point of infinite density. Then they say it also would be a point of dimensionless space. Now, see the problem. You're talking about physical universe. Okay? If it's infinitely dense, infinitely small, it means it's not there. Okay? If it's a point that takes a physical point that takes up no dimensions in space, it takes up no space. Again, it's not there. Why do they use big words like that? Because they know it sounds too much like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But the beginning of the universe, I think it's, I think it's page 135 of William Lane Craig and Quentin Smith, their debate entitled, it's in book form, Theism, Atheism, and Big Bang Cosmology. On page 135 in that debate, Quentin Smith basically says, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, all we should say is that the universe just, just popped into existence out of nothing, totally without a cause. My, Dr. Michael Martin from Boston University, uh, in, in my debate, the Internet debate with him, he basically said the same thing, that we don't really need to look for a cause for the existence of the universe. It just, there's, there's no reason... No reason to reject the idea that it may have just popped into existence totally out of nothing, totally out of course. So, I mean, keep in mind where the present state of atheism is, okay? A atheism is on the ropes, okay? I mean, even the fact that today's atheists used to be called agnostics. But once they realized it was impossible to disprove God's existence uh, with certainty... Eventually, they started watering down the definition of atheism. So now atheism is just the lack of belief in God rather than the positive belief there is no God. You find this in Michael Martin's works, uh, Is Atheism a Philosophical Justification? Um, so whatever the case, right now, when it comes to the beginning of the universe, although there are um, uh, theoretical physicists and and um, uh, astronomers and uh, cosmologists who are desperately trying to get, a, get a, around the beginning of the universe, uh, most atheist thinkers that I've uh, read and encountered uh, grant the beginning of the universe, but they still try to argue that doesn't necessitate a cause. Listen, whatever has a beginning needs a cause. Okay? If something did not exist and then it began to exist, it's impossible to say, well, it caused itself to exist. Because then it would have to pre-exist its own existence in order to bring its own existence about. Okay? That's, that's absurd. Okay? Uh, it can't cause, if it has a beginning, it could not cause itself to come into existence. The idea that Quentin Smith, Michael Martin, talk about nothing producing everything in the universe. Uh, look, Rita, I'm going to talk, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about nothing, okay? If people, if somebody misses my talk, so we're friends talk about things, he talked a whole lot about nothing. Um, but this is going to be deep, okay? This is very deep philosophy, okay? So you have to put your thinking caps on. Nothing is nothing. Therefore, nothing can do nothing. Therefore, nothing can cause nothing. See, non-being cannot cause being. From nothing, nothing comes. I mean, philosophers have said it in like 50 million different ways, okay? If you got nothing, nothing's going to come out. If you have nothing in your bank account, okay? You don't have to keep checking the statements to see how much interest you've gained, okay? Um, 
So, whatever the case, atheists, like, you know, you go back to Friedrich Nietzsche, who died in 1900, okay? You go back to those guys, those atheists, they were saying, well, the universe doesn't need a cause because it's eternal. It was always existing. It never had a beginning, so it doesn't need a cause. Atheists never admitted the defeat. You know, starting about 1929 with Edwin Hubble and re realizing the universe was expanding in all different directions. They never did admit defeat. Even without the Big Bang. Let's say the Big Bang is, it doesn't, doesn't hold. You still have the second law of thermodynamics. That basically the amount of uh, usable energy in a closed system winds down. Okay? The universe, we're, we're running out of usable energy. So eventually, if God doesn't exist, if God doesn't un in uh, exist and intervene, eventually we'll run out of all the usable energy in the universe. That will mark the death of the universe. But that means as you go backwards in time, eventually you reach a point where all the energy in the universe was in a usable state, and that would mark the beginning of the universe. Okay? You can even use philosophical arguments to argue that the universe had to have a beginning. Okay? Because... If the, if the universe is eternal, okay, if the universe is eternal, that means that there were an infinite number of moments before the present moment now. The problem is, no matter how many moments you traverse, no matter how many moments you cross, okay, no matter how many moments you pass through, uh, you could never get through an infinite number of moments. There would always be an infinite number of moments more to go through. So we would never reach the present moment now unless there was a first moment in time. Okay? And so if there was a first moment in time, that tells us the universe had a beginning. See, God exists outside of time in eternity, and then he produced the, the universe that exists, and the universe is a time-bound uh, universe. Um, and so basically the beginning of the universe... Um, I think it's strong evidence. And, and by the way, I wouldn't even look at these so much as arguments for God's existence. I, you know, be, be, because, you know, we don't, we don't wake up in the morning. Just think how we think, okay? You don't wake up in the morning and have a, a, a rational, uh, go through a, a, a rational argumentation to figure out whether you should eat cornflakes or, uh, or, or two eggs and bacon, okay? Um... It's just this little thing. You, with me, I usually decide what I'm going to eat for breakfast. It's usually a gut feeling, you know? Shredded wheat on, on Monday. Tuesday, I'm, I'm, I'm back at the Cheerios. So, uh, uh, but we human beings, when, when, uh, when we uh, uh, make decisions, it, it, it's like we, we think and we reason, but we don't spell it out in a logical syllogism, a, a rational argument, okay? And so what I like to think of these aspects of human experience of as, um, as basically uh, clues, little clues that God has given us. And with each one of these clues, it's more reasonable to believe that God exists, that personal God exists, rather than the personal God doesn't exist. And as you look at all these clues, the case for God begins to build. Okay? Um, we don't have time to, to look at the continuing existence of the universe. Uh, let, me, let me switch to the design and order found in the universe. Um, this is what a lot of philosophers call the teleological argument. You know, William Paley said if you walk into the wilderness and you found a, a watch, even if you never saw a watch before, you just look at it, see how it works, and you would see that it was designed for a purpose. 
And then William Paley argued the human eye is much more complex than a watch. If a watch takes a watchmaker, then the human eye and the vast, complex, well-designed universe takes an intelligent designer. Um, I mean, I mean, it's amazing. Scientists have, have discovered what they call the anthropic principle, the Greek word anthropos, uh, for man. What, what they're saying is, it, it appears that whether you look at the, the chemical composition of the outer reaches of the universe or the chemical composition um, uh, found within our solar system or the distance of the sun from the earth and the planets and all, uh, no matter where you look, it, it, it appears as if the universe was created to sustain human life on the planet Earth. And so what they do with the anthropic principle, they say, but of course, this, that's not the case. That sounds like, uh, like Genesis 1-1. Uh, therefore, we've got to come up with some reason why it appears to be that way, but it really isn't. Okay? Well, I, if it appears to be that way, you know, since science deals with the world of the senses, the, the world and the way it appears to us, uh, maybe we ought to just accept that there is strong evidence that God designed the universe. One of the main reasons was to sustain human life uh, on the planet Earth. I mean, you know, I, I, I have uh, one of my former high school students, He's going to University of Washington, and he's one of five students uh, in the whole university majoring in the history of uh, science and philosophy. And the other four guys are all atheists, so they're really, you know, nailing them. You know, they hang out together, they take the same courses together, and, um, and they're really nailing him. And he said that uh, he didn't know, they were talking about the intelligent design movement, and he didn't know how to answer them. They said that it, you cannot be true to science and allow intelligent causes. And so I say, well, what did you, what did you say? And he said, well, Doc, I didn't know how to answer him, so, so I just kind of backed down. I said, well, you go back and tell, tell him this. Say, so you mean to tell me that when an archaeologist finds an arrowhead, he's not allowed anymore to call it science when, when, when he concludes that there must have been an arrowhead maker? I mean, just a simple, I mean, an arrowhead is not, even I could probably figure out, if you give me 10 or 20 years, I could probably figure out how to make an arrowhead. And I'm not, I'm not really good working with my hands. I don't even own the tools at my house. Um, but, uh, but scientists do this all the time. They find, archaeologists find a vase. And they say, well, that was an intelligent product of intelligent design. Okay? So, I mean, if this is done on a regular basis in science, why should we make an arbitrary rule that says, yeah, but you can't do that? when you deal with the origin of the universe, or the origin of first life, or the origin of uh, more complex life forms. Um, even Richard Dawkins, one of the world's most uh, uh, militant atheist evolutionists, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, he talks about the amoeba, the single-celled animal, and he says, just the DNA of the amoeba has enough highly complex information called specified complexity um, that it has so much information that it would fill 1,000 complete sets of Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, that's a whole lot of information. I'm supposed to believe it got here by chance? Okay? What if, um, I'm a Raider fan, okay? Uh, uh, Pastor Hutchinson used to play for the, for the, the Seahawks. What if I was having breakfast at his house and he had alphabet cereal? Okay? 
And I and I get and I get up a little earlier. I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm younger, more vibrant than 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 Pastor than Pastor Hutch, you know. And you know, God bless him. I was preaching the word when I was just a little guy. And um, but let's say I, I got up earlier than him in the morning, okay? And I'm having my 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 bowl of uh, alphabet cereal, and uh, and Hutch sits down, and he gets his bowl, and he's ready to eat, and he sees spelled out on the table in the alphabet cereal. Seahawks stink, Raiders rule. Now, that would never happen because, you know, Hutch is a lot bigger than me. Uh, but, um, I'm very nice to people who are bigger than me. Uh, but, uh, you think I would be able to convince him that as I was pouring my cereal, some of the alphabet cereal fell out? And it gets spelled out. And I, I mean, it was freaky. I freaked out when I saw it too, Hutch. I mean, hey, don't don't blame me, you know. Hey, I think the I think the Seahawks are, you know, they're all right with me, you know. Someday, someday I hope they'll get one ring, Hutch. But um, um, the uh, the Raiders have three. Thank you. Um, but um, but you know, if he's looking at if he's looking at that, there's no way I'm going to convince him that the cereal fell out and just spelled that out. Now listen, listen closely. Seahawks, I'm not, I'm not a, uh, an expert on statistics, all right? Um, Seahawks rule, or see, oops, oops, oops. That's a, I like, hey, that was a Freudian slip. Give me some, probably some slack here. Um, if it, if it, if it, Seahawks think Raiders rule, if it takes intelligent design to produce that, then what in the world are we saying when we look at an amoeba and we got a thousand complete sets of Encyclopedia Britannica worth of information and some of our world-breeding scientists are telling us that got here by chance. What in the world are you talking about? Look, I mean, why did we spend billions of dollars for the SETI program? Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Okay? And all they're looking for is one message from outer space that will prove intelligent life on other planets. One message? What is that? One sentence? One phrase? I don't know. Uh, but one little message proves intelligent life on other planets, but a thousand complete sets of Encyclopedia Britannica. They got here by chance. Um, I don't blind, the, when, What does Dawkins mean by the blind watchmaker? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. So, you know, they, they, they give illustrations with, if you have, um, how many explosions would it take in a print shop before accidentally you would produce a, um, a Webster's Dictionary? Well, it's not going to happen. It takes intelligent design. And we get a lot more highly complex information to deal with than a Webster's Dictionary. Um, see, and, and then there's this idea. People will tell you, they'll say, this is a scientific statement that the Big Bang produced all the order and complexity that we find in the universe today. Is that really a scientific statement? Every time we scientifically examine, you know, forensic science, the results of a random explosion, it doesn't produce more order and complexity. Think about the Twin Towers. Think about the Oklahoma City bombing. Okay? You go from a state of order and complexity to disorder and chaos. That's what explosions do. 
So that's not a scientific statement to say the Big Bang, some big random explosion, not only produced all the order and complexity in the world today, but continues to produce more order and more complexity. We're just not going to be around long enough to see that. Okay? So this is the argument from uh, design. Let me skip down to the argument from universal, eternal, unchanging moral laws. That they prove the existence of an eternal, unchanging moral lawgiver. See, you know... People love moral relativists. They love telling us, and most atheists are moral relativists. They love telling us, you know, what's right for you is right for you, doesn't have to be right for me, and vice versa, and blah, blah, blah. And then as soon as you start condemning their actions or their behavior, okay, they condemn you. And the way they condemn you, they don't say it this way, but I'm going to spell it out because this is what they mean, okay? They won't say it this way because it's, it's so obviously self-refuting. But they say, Fernandez, you Christians are wrong to call my actions wrong because there's no such thing as wrong. Okay? Hey, hey, look, bud, if there's no such thing as wrong, we Christians are never wrong. Leave us alone. If, if moral relativism is true, uh, Christians would be left alone. You know, you know, there's no such thing as right and wrong. So when you Christians try to teach the Bible and your morality in the public schools, that's wrong. We need to outlaw that. It does not follow. It does not follow um, at all. You know, sometimes when I talk to moral relativists, I'll say, well, we're, you know, let's face it. We make moral decisions. We make moral value decisions. Everybody does. Especially, you know, just not just the Christians, but people who don't like Christianity. We make moral value judgments. So where is the, what's the ultimate standard? Well, a moral relativist might say, well, it's the individual. Each individual decides what is right or wrong for himself or, or herself. But there's a problem with that. If that's true, if the individual is the highest level, okay, you can't go to any higher moral standards than that, then you can't condemn the actions of Adolf Hitler because he did what he thought was right. Joseph Stalin, Osama bin Laden, but even more relativists want to condemn their actions as wrong. So then they might say, well, maybe it's society. So they take it up a notch, okay? Maybe it's society. We get together, we form a society, we make laws. But then there's a problem. If the society is the, is the highest arbiter of what is right and what is wrong, then one society, like America, cannot condemn the actions of another society, like the Taliban, as being wrong. The Allies can't condemn the actions of Nazi Germany as being wrong. But even atheists and moral relativists want to condemn the actions uh, of Nazi Germany and, and the Taliban. So, you know, you might be able to press them. They might say, well, maybe it's a world consensus. What in the world is a world consensus? Okay? I know the, the UN is supposed to be speaking for me right now, I guess. Right? So we got my best. I don't. I don't have a little voting mechanism where I get to vote on everything. You know, seems like people are telling me what I believe rather than listening to hear from me what I believe. But world consensus. Hey, if we ever had a world consensus in the past, it wasn't. You know, the world consensus used to be the woman has no rights. She's the property of the man. That was wrong. Uh, slavery was perfectly permissible. World consensus was wrong there. World consensus at one time, you know, the world is flat. The world consensus does not have a really good track record. You see, what they're doing is 
they keep quantitatively adding more and more individuals. That's not what you need. The moral law is qualitatively uh, above us. And so you need a moral... You know, the thing is, when the atheist protests and tries to make the world a better place to live, okay, what he's saying is, I don't like the world consensus, I'm trying to change it. He's appealing to a moral standard even above the world consensus. Okay? And so, when you look at all this, and then the atheists will say, well, we think the world was worse in the past, and we think we made it better today, but we want to make it even better in the future. They're acting, they're, they're, they're appealing to a, a moral standard above all individuals, above all societies, above any world consensus, and they're acting as if this moral standard does not change with time. In other words, they say one thing, but the way they act contradicts it. It's like Francis Schaeffer basically said, look, you can deny the God of Christianity, but you still have to live like Christianity is true. You still have to live in God's universe, because it's the only one we got. Okay? So, basically what it amounts to is, if there's a moral law above all individuals, all societies, any world consensus, and it's eternal and unchanging, it doesn't change with time, then what we need, since moral laws are commands, they're prescriptive laws, they're not descriptive laws, they don't describe the way things are, they prescribe the way things ought to be, that means we need a moral lawgiver above all individuals, above all societies, above any world consensus, and this moral lawgiver must be eternal and unchanging. And so from our moral experience, you know, I, I, I'll tell you, it's, it's amazing the answers you get. When I debated Dan Barker at Bellevue Community College, I asked him, I said, if your worldview is true, if your atheism is true, um, are um, incest and rape wrong for all people at all times and all places? And he, was, he said, no. Now, at that point, I thought I would win the crowd, but the, the crowd was made up of Bellevue Community College students, so they began to heckle me for being intolerant because I believed in moral absolutes. Okay? See, that's another thing. When you dialogue with atheists or any other non-Christians, you can't force a person to believe. All we're doing when we defend the faith, we're planting seed, and we're praying that the Holy Spirit will move within their hearts, and that eventually they'll, 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 they'll see their folly, acknowledge their need for the Lord Jesus, and turn to Him uh, for salvation. Um, uh, the, the meaning of life, uh, purpose. If, if God does not exist, and there's no life after death, and life, no judgment or rewards, then life is absurd. You realize that a million years from now, it would make no difference whether you lived your life like Adolf Hitler and slaughtered innocent human beings, or like Corey Ten Boom, who laid down your life to protect innocent human beings. A million years from now, uh, both Hitler and Corey Ten Boom will have ceased to exist. Everybody they ever influenced will have ceased to exist. And eventually, the whole universe is going to die anyway. Okay? Um... You take God out of the equation, nothing makes sense. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. Take God out of the equation, and nothing makes sense. Um, you know, I, I'll be honest with you. you know, Paul, the way Paul put it, if, you know, if Christ isn't raised, then the dead will not be raised. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So I, I debated at a major atheist conference. I was a token theist to debate their up-and-coming atheists. And I basically, um, I basically said, you know, it makes perfect sense. If I believe Jesus is who he claimed to be, 
that I put Jesus bumper stickers on my car, that um, uh, that I would be sharing my faith with Jesus and get up early in the morning to talk to people about Jesus. So it doesn't make any sense to me at all that if you people are writing God doesn't exist, you would put Darwin fish on your car, that you would uh, write journals on it and books about it, and then that you travel halfway around the world for a major atheist conference at uh, Chapel Hill, a University of North Carolina campus, to celebrate the non-existence of God, and that after we die, we cease to exist. I said, to be totally honest with you, I don't even know why you people get up in the morning. And then, and then, I, and then I thought for us, so, you know, here I am, Mr. Mr. Unknown Theist, and I thought, oh, Lord, what did I say? That was, that was really bad. i got to show more, more respect for these people. So I shut up, and I thought, okay, they're going to hackle me, but i got it coming. I got out of line. I shut up, nothing. Zilch, nothing. All I saw was a bunch of people were like this. Okay? I was in it. They took a break during the debate. I was in one of the stalls in a restroom. And I heard two guys. I don't know if they were at the sink or whatever, but uh, but I heard two guys saying, well, uh, how do you think it's going? They said, well, I don't know. The good thing is I don't think anybody's going to change their mind today. So I thought, wow, that's pretty good. He must be there. My wife was sitting in the audience with all these atheists around her, so they were talking left and one guy turned, turned to another guy and said, uh, how would you refute that? And the other guy beats me. You know, I'm a, I'm a geologist. I study rocks. I don't know what he's talking about. You know, but, but, uh, uh, but whatever the case, it, it, uh, numerous atheists told me that it does bother them that if their worldview is true, that in the end, um, their life is insignificant. Solomon tried to look at everything under the sun. Take God out of the equation, look at human experience, and everything is futility. It's a waste of time. But once his conclusion was, once you put God back in the equation, then not only do our deeds take on eternal significance, but even our thoughts. Even our thoughts. And um, so, uh, so uh, that may be uh, 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 a clue that you might want to uh, focus on. Let me talk a little bit about the guarantee that evil will be defeated. Atheists love bringing up evil as evidence against God. Okay, well, they're, they're, usually they're not saying, I really believe in, in real evil. Okay? Because that's a really good way. You're on the road to believing in God, then, because evil exists as a perversion of that which is good. And uh, so, uh, what atheists are saying is if Christianity is true, then a guy suffering on his deathbed, that would be a case of evil. And, that's, and they would say, and I think that's inconsistent with your belief in God, and it goes, it goes on and on. But what the atheist isn't telling you is that within his worldview, he really can't call anything evil. Okay? I mean, the Christian worldview is superior just in that alone, that we can look at a man dying of an incurable disease on his bed and say, that's a product of evil, that's not the way things ought to be. The atheist really can't say it. Whatever is, is. So I think right off, right at the start, we're doing better. Number two, the problem of evil is not something that, you know, like shocks Christian scholars. Like, oh, man, evil. I didn't even realize it. Oh, wow. Yeah, now my faith is destroyed. Let me tell you, if there was no problem of evil, God would not have written the Bible. Listen, you want the, you want the ultimate answer to the problem of evil, it's the Bible. See, what, what I'm getting at is the atheists talk about evil as being a hypothetical problem. 
No, it's not a hypothetical problem, Mr. Atheist. It's worse than that. It's an existential problem. It's a problem of human experience. I mean, the day came in the year 2000, January 2000, I'm looking at my mom in a coffin. And you tell me evil is just a hypothetical problem? No, it's a real problem. My grandson the other day called me on the phone, me and the missus, and he's crying because little fish Obi-Wan died. You know? And I didn't remember when his mom went. My daughter, when her goldfish died, you know, we had a Christian burial and everything, but, but, um, um, but the day comes when the older you get, you know, eventually you go from goldfish dying, which I, I can get over that, but then you get a good dog that you have in 10 years dies, and that really rocks you, and then all of a sudden you love one. The problem of evil is real. Real problems need real answers, and let me tell you, apart from the incarnation Death, resurrection, and return of the Lord Jesus Christ, I know no real solution to the problem of evil. I think the atheist takes the problem of evil too lightly by acting like it's a problem for philosophers and philosophy halls. No, it's a real existential problem of human experience. This is why Blaine Pascal said, picture yourself in line, and you're walking, you're walking in line, and each guy's getting slaughtered one after another, and you know that eventually your number's coming up. And then Pascal says this, is the, the human condition. Now, Pascal says, it's like we're walking towards the edge of the cliff. Well, what do we do? We put our hands over our heads. We know we're going to die, says Pascal. So what do we do? We go out dancing. We go out dancing. Pascal calls that diversion. Rather than despair and face the reality of death, man's greatest enemy, we like to divert our attention and pretend it's never going to be me in that coffin. It's always going to be somebody else. Pascal says we need to face that, face death, and then ask, maybe instead of despair, maybe there is deliverance. And that is why, I think I'm going to close with this, that is why Blaise Pascal, he's built upon his wager argument. I don't have time to talk about my book, No Other Gods. I've got an appendix on, on, uh, on Blaise Pascal's thought. But Blaise Pascal with his wager argument, why we should wager on God, okay? He basically came to the conclusion that there's only two kinds of people that could be called wise. Okay? Those who serve God with all their hearts because they know Him. And those who seek God with all their hearts because they don't know Him. Now, with this way, you're going to have time to get into it and all, but it's like this. Let me tell you. Let me tell you something. I don't know if he meant it this way, but Pascal's wager argument, that if you wager your life, you seek God with all your heart, if, if, if uh, you live as if God exists, you hope that God exists, you're biased towards God's existence, you're looking for evidence of his existence, uh, you have eternity to gain. If you win, you win everything. But if you lose, you lose nothing. You really, if the atheist is right, and, that, and you and him die in a car accident at the same time, a minute later, he can't turn to you and say, see, I was right. There's nothing, nothing to gain. If the atheist wins, he wins nothing. If he loses, he loses eternity. Pascal, who wrote the laws of probability, he says the wise man will wager his life on God. Okay? Let me tell you how strong his wager argument is. Let's say you had a little child, and you love this little child, and they got lost in the woods. 
And after a day of searching, the uh, uh, sheriff, the police chief, comes up to you. And he says, look, uh, Mr. So-and-so, uh, there's only a 1% chance that your child is still alive. Is it all right if we call off the search? No. No, because there's too much to gain. Just 1% possibility you should still be searching. And when you talk about God and eternity, if there's only 1% chance of God existing, it would still be worth devoting our lives to that search. And so people who can arrogantly just stand there and say there is no God, and you guys believe in fairy tales and all this other stuff, they're not facing this thing called death, man's greatest enemy. So if you're looking for the solution, if you're going to face reality, live in the real world, and look for the solution to evil, human suffering, and death, the solution to the problem of evil, ultimately, when everything is said and done, is not really a philosophical answer. The solution to the problem of evil. His name is Jesus. The Lamb who was slain. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob become a man to die on the cross for our sins. I didn't get a chance to cover all of this. Hopefully the handout will help a little. If you have any questions, you can ask me at the, at the table. But uh, thank you for your patience. And uh, God bless you.